0: That's a sensational catch, absolutely brilliant from Hooper. Was hit back firmly by
1: Mallow. Hammered down the ground, it could fly all the way for a maximum. It's going to soar into the sky. That's the six they needed, that's 50 for Brush. What a knock that is from him! Outstanding striking, and that six brings Guernsey back into the game.
0: Could be a catch, what a catch! One handed grab, and that's Josh Butler, the captain. Oh my days, we have been treated to some catches in this tournament. Welcome to Under the Covers, Guernsey Cricket's very own podcast. I'm Ben Furbrush, Guernsey Cricket Development Manager, and on this podcast we will be chatting to players old and new, coaches, administrators and other cricketing keen beans along the way. This week we're joined by former England cricketer and founder of Sporting Edge, Jeremy Snape. Before we hear from Jeremy, here's a bit more information about the exciting company he set up after he retired from professional sport. During times of uncertainty and pressure, your mindset will be the key to your success. Sporting Edge members have unlimited personal access to hundreds of video insights and performance strategies to accelerate their personal and professional success. This is your chance to get powerful weekly micro-lessons from the world's best thinkers and performers from Elite Sport. You'll be able to connect with a global network of entrepreneurs, coaches, and senior executives on webinars, discussion forums, and events. Become a Sporting Edge member and get access to the world's best coaches on demand. For more information, visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. Jeremy Snape, welcome to the Guernsey Cricket Podcast. Thank you for coming on. We heard a little bit about your company, which we'll touch on a bit later on in the show. Hi, Ben. Good to see you. So if we can go right the way back to the start of your career, you're born April the 27th, 1973 in Stoke-on-Trent. Um, what did your ch- early childhood look like? And were you born into sort of a big sporting family?
1: Uh, well, interesting, yeah, to go straight back in that timeline. My dad was very keen on football, um, And played sort of semi-professional football, but never played cricket. But interestingly, um, my dad's best friend was David Steele, who was the 1970s legend who took on Australia uh, with his sort of grey hair, uh, cloth cap and and a sort of tea towel down instead of a thigh pad and and took on Thompson and Lily. So it was a bit of a legend, really, David Steele. So my dad and David were at school together in in Staffordshire and um, we used to travel around and see David's, my, I've got an elder brother and, and David's got two boys as well. So we sort of, uh, you know, travelled and had weekends together and stuff. And part of that was actually watching David travel the county circuit. So we'd watch him play at Derbyshire or, or North Northants or wherever it might be. So there was that interest and that sort of family interest, I guess, from, from cricket but my folks never played. And, and I was quite a hyperactive kid. I loved playing cricket in the garden with my elder brother. Um, and I, I was always breaking things at home. So I think when my dad um, one summer holidays, I was off and, and he was painting, decorating the, the lounge. And I was stepping in things and breaking things. And they'd seen in the local newspaper that there was a coaching clinic for cricket and that you could pack your son off for the whole day. A set of whites and... Um, you know a bit of lunch and, and you could go off so basically I got you know whisked off to this training centre and uh, played this cricket didn't know anything about it in Staffordshire and then I was asked to stay back at the end of the day and it turned out that it was the Staffordshire trials for under 11s and uh, the, car, the guy wanted me to to stay behind and see if I could get you know go to the next trial which my dad was surprised about because I think he thought I'd broke something at the net <laughs> um, And, uh, yeah, that that was the start, really. So I played that under-11s tournament. One of my first games was at Old Trafford. I was given out LBW, which I didn't even know what it meant. And, you know, the umpire gave me out. We're actually on the main Old Trafford pitch, um, and we were told two things, that we always respect the umpire's decision, and whenever you walk off, you raise your bat if parents are clapping. So I got out second ball for a duck. LBW. I had to ask the umpire, why am I out? I didn't hit it or didn't get caught. And then as I waddled off, the parents all clapped and I raised my bat, which was a remarkable (laughs) sort of start to my career. So that's my first memory of a proper cricket match. And then I think you get on that conveyor belt and, and, you know, played under 13s, under 15s, captained under 15s for England, um, and then started pro at 16. But my, my folks were always really keen that I'd sort of continue my education and now and you know did the the semi-pro type of thing where we had what we called summer contracts where I'd play cricket for six months um sorry for three months um so I'd be at school April May June and then the pro contract would be July August September so I did that for five years at North Hunts and it was a great sort of apprenticeship if you like
0: yeah and then with with that did you play much at school as well alongside that
1: well, it was an interesting one. I, I actually failed. My brother went to a, um, a private day school, and um, it was largely assumed that I would follow in his footsteps and be on the same lift rotor because it'd be very convenient. And I think we'd arranged all the lifts and the plans. But but on one Saturday morning, uh, this heavy letter dropped onto our doormat, and it was the letter that had failed the eleven plus and wasn't going to that school. So I just remember, you know, sitting around with the family and this sort of veil of shame that dropped over me of this massive failure at age 11 and I think that that was part of the reason I threw myself into cricket to be honest and I never wanted to be a failure again and I worked incredibly hard with that and part of that meant that when I was about 13 14 I got spotted by one of the private schools uh, one of the coaches at Denston College um and a guy called Phil Smith one of the the I think he was a classics teacher um spotted me playing for the Staffordshire team and, and asked me, would I like to uh, play at a s- cricket at school? And, and I was at a comprehensive school where the headmistress hated or didn't allow any any competitive sport. So we were, you know, every Tuesday and Thursday, I was seen in my vest and shorts doing gymnastics in a massive hall. Uh, and we were banned from playing in the school football, pit, a football team. Um, so to go to Denston where they'd got grass nets and, you know, uh play cricket twice a week was an incredible privilege really and um i ended up as head boy there playing in all the you know first eleven from age 14 and 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 that accelerated my development without a doubt and and you know going on was a was a big that was a big part of it and then following
0: that you attended Durham university um and and that was part of the part time contract then was it the summer contract at, at northants
1: yeah so i'd i'd um i was still playing part time uh, professional cricket then but again it was a it was actually a big decision that because you know lots of people saying you know when you get to sort of 18 you you you're doing quite well in second team cricket and things like that and lots of people were saying well if you you know if you stay now you can actually get in the first team early but to be honest it always made sense to go to Durham and you know it's a brilliant university and and the sport again was excellent uh, we had lots of fun as well. And and the team we had, it was a bit unfair on other universities. Looking back, we had about 13 professional cricketers, I think we had three professional left arm spinners in one year that we were there. So I think the third team were very lucky that they had a, a pro left arm spinner. But, you know, brilliant days, um, managed to get through my degree and, and played lots of cricket and had lots of fun in the sun. And uh, yeah, played combined universities, which was another great thing.
0: Was Durham a UCC then,
1: or was that later on? Yeah, well, a bit later, but we we played in. It was called the UAU back in back in the black and white days, and <laughs> uh, yeah, we won that a few times. And and we also had a hilarious trip to playing indoor cricket. So before the season started, we had a, as I say, a really sort of talented group of of young thirsty students, and the chance to play indoor cricket in this league, the the indoor six-a-side tournament was a good warm-up to the season in sort of February-March. So we actually won the Northern competition. Then we went to Lourdes and and won the English competition. And we represented England in Europe at this international six-a-side tournament. So on the night before, it was actually in Vienna, of all places. So in this school sports hall in Vienna, there's all these very serious expat sort of players and teams from around Europe and this drunken set of students from Durham University, you know, who'd rocked up after a late night with those massive Stein glasses of, of you know, four pint glasses of, of lager and dancing on the tables. And to their despair, we actually batted incredibly well, ran really well between the wickets and swung and spun the ball prodigiously and, and won the European trophy. So a European champion, would you believe that at indoor cricket at that early age? That's good stuff.
0: Um, so then, following that, you you spent six years with uh, Northants and then decided to move to Gloucestershire. How did that move sort of come about?
1: Yeah, well, i you know there was a great setup at Northants, lots of talent and and you know huge potential. I think they'd got this brilliant um, you know scouting system where they seemed to pick all the best young players from that young England setup. So it was packed with talent, but not a huge amount of opportunity to play. I was playing a lot of one day cricket. Um, but we didn't, I was just stagnating a little bit and they were talking about maybe becoming vice-captain and that kind of stuff. But um, I got head-hunted, I guess, by Gloucestershire. John Bracewell had, had moved to the club. Um, Mark Lane was the innovative captain. John was very ambitious about changing that brand of cricket that Gloucester played and um, redefined an era, to be honest. I, I slotted into an incredibly hard-working team that focused on You know, not just being cricketers, but being athletes, which was a bit of a strange one, because at North Ants, we'd partied hard and and not trained particularly hard. I think we won one trophy in that nine years I was there. But, you know, a lap around the park, followed by a pub lunch was was about as far as it went. But, you know, I think on the first day of training at Gloucester, we did an eight mile run, which was, uh, you know, a bit of an eye opener. But, you know, that that discipline, that fitness, that, you know, role clarity for everyone started to gel together. And with a bit of brilliance from people like Jack Russell and Kim Barnett and and Ian Harvey, the Australian player, you know, we very quickly started to build and galvanise a really strong team that could then go on and win lots of the one day trophies. So that I think they called it the glorious Gloucesters. You know, it was a period when I think we won, um, you know, one year we won two trophies. The next year we won three. So we won the Benson and Hedges and Nat West two years in a row, both at Lord's. So four Lords finals back to back, which was unprecedented at the time and you know an incredible journey to be part of because we were underdogs and no one expected Gloucester to win anything and we'd got you know Surrey and Lancashire with all the big test players coming down to players on a bit of a you know turnip patch at uh, Neville Road and uh, we sent them packing and had a few parties along the way so it was a, a brilliant era to be part of that team.
0: It must have been quite good something at the top of your mark bowling with Jack Russell behind the stumps as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was incredible, really, and he really inspired me because obviously he'd been a world-class player, you know, not, not the, the flashiest person in the world, but, you know, he reinvented himself again and took his game to another level after so many years with England. He started to stand up to the stumps, and we'd got some pretty lively medium paces in John Lewis and James Averis and Ian Harvey himself. You know, they're bowling, you know, mid-80s and stuff like that. It's pretty nippy. And Jack, with no padding in his gloves and no inners, was sort of standing up there and, and making it look like it was a tennis ball. You know, and incredible guts, you know, incredible courage, incredible skill. Um, and certainly one of the best cricketers I ever played with, just from a tenacity and, and resilience and courageous point of view. You, you know, he was incredible and, um, you know, he was a really important linchpin in that Gloucestershire side.
0: Yeah, and then following on from that sort of double year and the treble year, uh, you got called up to England. Um, pretty impressive start to your career of England. On debut, you bowled 10 overs, 2 for 39. You followed that up in the second ODI uh, with two over uh, 10 overs, 2 for 38. Uh, 24 not out in the third ODI, chasing 2.62. And then in the final ODI, you were 8.3 overs, 3 for 43. And people always talk about not knowing if you can make that next step up. Given that you did make that next step up pretty emphatically. Was that something you could take a lot from? Or did you feel like you were slightly older making your debut? I think you were 28. Did that sort of help you as well?
1: Well, I think playing in that Gloucester side that was used to winning was definitely a massive boost to my confidence. You know, we we built a bit of a machine at Gloucester. I wasn't used to losing. You know, we were, we were really successful. So I think to go into the international level, it felt a big step up emotionally, but... I also knew I was in good form and that if I could do my... I just wanted to do my best, to be honest. I wasn't putting myself under massive pressure. I don't think I realised the enormity of playing for England. I have to say, when you're in it, you just, you know, you stick your shirt on and you get out there. You're playing with... That was probably the bit that that I was most anxious about. You know, you're playing with Darren Goff and Andy Caddock and, and Alex Stewart and Graham Thorpe and Nasser and people like that, you know, brilliant and Freddie you know, fantastic cricketers that I'd always looked up to. And now I was, you know, NASA was chucking chucking me the ball. So it really helped me that we're the first games that I played were against uh, Zimbabwe uh, away on tour. And I got Man of the Match on my debut, actually, which settled the nerves a little bit. And I played quite a lot out there on tour because Kevin Curran, the North Ants cricketer, was from Harare and he'd um, sent us out on quite a few pre-seasons. So it felt like a... A sort of a, a grown-up county game with a bit more on it to me um, but those things changed very quickly when we went on the next tour which was to India and that was a completely different kettle of fish
0: yeah so you're going to get onto the India series there's one game in particular I want to focus on obviously I was fortunate enough to attend a webinar last week that you hosted Eden Gardens probably in front of 65,000 England chasing down uh, I'm not quite sure I think it was 260 uh, tell us what happened next
1: Well, the the crowd was definitely over 100,000 and some said 120,000. So it was before the stadium was changed to be seated. It was sort of just basically concrete platforms with hordes of people shouting, satching, you know, in unison, Um, you know, incredibly hot. The noise can only be described like, uh, you know, you know, when you stand too close to a cheap disco and it sort of starts reverberating through your chest that's what the noise was like standing at cover as Darren Goff ran into Verinder Saywag and Sachin. It was unbelievable. And I'd actually done quite a lot of, you know, not visualization, but training in the Gloucester indoor center where I'd put a cone down on the floor. The rain was hammering down in the sort of dark nights and I was on my own in that indoor school, just bowling at a cone. Um, and I'd sort of picked up this rhythm and this sort of tempo in my head of visualizing that I was bowling to Sachin in India and when I eventually got thrown the ball, I just tried to remember, you know, that same rhythm. And, and when the first ball landed, I was absolutely delighted because I could hardly feel my fingers at the time. So I bowled quite well in that game. I think I got a wicket. And um, the issue came when we started to bat. Trescothic got a brilliant hundred. Um, and this run rate was, was sort of starting to climb as it does at the back end of a one-day game. And England needed a hero to step up and win it for them. And sadly... I ran out Freddie Flint off and then played the worst shot of my life. And it was one of those moments where you're sort of surrounded by, you know, 100,000 people all shouting against you. And the loudest voice was still in my head. You know, the loudest voice was saying, you're not good enough to be here. You've really messed this up. You've got to do it all from here. You've got to do something pretty special. And I scrambled and played a ridiculous shot and got out LBW, I think. So, you know, it's, it really made me realise that, our mindset so important to our performance and, and unless we can think clearly under pressure, we're never going to be able to play to the level we want to. And I think, you know, as I look back through my career, some days I was clear and focused and confident and stayed calm under pressure and did really well. Other days I was panicked, nervous, fearful, you know, distracted by the outcome and the press and all that sort of stuff. And I was terrible you know, so it always amazed me that we never coached mindset more when it seemed to be the biggest factor between success and failure. And I guess that's what started me off on that next chapter.
0: Yeah. And then following that, you, you left uh, Gloucestershire and joined Leicestershire uh, and became somewhat of a, a, a T20 specialist, really. Something that we're going to have to mention is, is the Moonball, which you, which you named. Um, talk to us about that period and also that delivery.
1: Yeah, I can't really escape the moon ball. Um, but yeah, the, the the transition to Leicester was, again, they were a really exciting, um, you know, going through a really exciting phase. Uh, they were looking to sort of relaunch their, um, you know, one day cricket especially. It gave me a real opportunity to start to study at Loughborough University as well while I was, um, you know, part time with with the cricket. I was always more of a one day cricketer and specialist in that area. So, I stepped down from my four day cricket and I was actually captain at the time, but, but started to do my master's degree in sports psychology to set myself up for the, the afterlife as it were. Um, and the one day 2020 stuff really gave me a second lease of life. Really. Um, it was, we didn't know how serious a tournament 2020 was, but it seemed quite fun. We were pretty dire in the championship at the time. So some, you know, slog fest and, and, you know, having a bit of a dive around seemed like a good uh, escape from the, the sort of brutal reality of four-day cricket that we were struggling in. So, yeah, we we created a little mini-season in the middle of the season, did a pre-season again and started to think about the strategy. And actually, we built a really good team. You know, we took a lot of those ideas across from uh, the Gloucester team that had been successful. Uh, we learnt very quickly. We got some great uh, leadership with H D Ackerman as captain and some great cricketers like um, Otis Gibson and Paul Nixon and Brad Hodge was the overseas player. Fantastic players, and and we built another winning team. You know, it was um, I I played in two winning finals at, for for Leicester Foxes in the 2020, and that that era was all about innovation. It was a condensed game, you know, really distilled down to 20 overs. Uh, I remember the first practice that we had. We played a game amongst ourselves, and I think we were bowled out for something like 58 <laughs> uh, in about nine and a half overs because we just thought we had to pummel everything out of the ground. And, and the first innings was all over. So, even though it was massively shorter than the 50 and 40 over tournaments that we'd played previously, we knew that we'd still got to build partnerships. We'd still got to keep a you know high tempo momentum through the game rather than just leave it all to the last over. So some of those core principles remained. Um, and from a bowling perspective, obviously you're thinking, God, this is going to be a nightmare. People are just going to smash it out of the park. And, and being a non-spinning off-spinner, uh, that was a real concern. So uh, I did the normal thing, you know, after one of the net sessions. I think it was Paul Nixon at the time. One of the lads was saying, you know, can you lob me a few up, you know, and let me hit some sixes. I a to practice hitting my sixes. And I thought, you know, I was actually a bit tired and a bit annoyed with it. So I ran up as fast as I could pulled the pin out of this ball and sort of lobbed it up and then followed through really quickly. So I ended up right next to the batsman's face and they fell on the floor laughing, had three swings at trying to hit it. And, and of course didn't. And they said, don't bowl like that bowl properly. I can't hit that. And this sort of moment where the, the sort of light bulb went off, I said, say that again. And they said, Oh, you know, can't hit that. It's it's sort of, it's not a proper ball. And I thought, well, that, that'll do for me. Um, so I actually, really tried to uh, develop that and and basically it was again looking at the sort of psychology of how you make decisions we we tend to you know think that we just make the decision as the ball comes out of the bowler's hand but actually the cues before that are so important you know the pace if you think about a fast bowler chirping a batsman saying i'm going to knock your head off their knees are a bit higher they're sort of you know grunting and snorting as they run into bowl you think it's going to be a bouncer so you've already made that decision before the ball's released. So it was a similar kind of thing with spin, not that I was ever going to scare anyone, but I definitely tried to humiliate them. Um, and this idea of running in quickly and making it look like all the energy at the front of the action was going to be really quick, which you would expect in some of these, you know, death overs in in you know, one day slog fests. So putting all the energy into the front, but then releasing the ball earlier and, and really slowly at the top of my action. But then following through really quickly as well gave a really weird signal that, you know, that looked everything apart from the release point made that look like it was a fast ball. And just that split second of the ball not being where they thought it was took away their core and took away their power position, which is, of course, what the batsmen were relying on. And I hated because they only had to get half a bat on it to hit it out of the ground. So there were a couple of things like that. Now, a few of the moon balls ended up there's actually a video that the ECB put out and they said, oh, Jeremy Snape invented the moon ball. And one of the balls they've got is from the 2006, I think it was the 2000, I can't remember which year, the final we played Knots and it was absolutely hosing down with rain and this waist-high pie full toss <laughs> sort of slides out and gets uh, Stephen Fleming caught on the boundary. So that is not the moon ball, let's be clear. But that sort of quick run-up and release point was. And, and the other thing that I changed, which made a difference again was, you know, traditionally... It, I think all spinners turn the back on the batsman and walk away from them towards, you know, deep mid-off or whatever and get the ball thrown back to them and then they turn round and get ready for the next ball but to me because this time between balls was so important I couldn't believe that why wouldn't I be watching the batsman all that time so I started to bowl the delivery, you know, end up in the normal sort of follow-through position and then wherever the ball was getting, you know, chucked around the inner circle or whatever I'd walk back from there, but I'd be watching the batsmen because batsmen aren't particularly bright, especially when they're under pressure. And they'd be looking at deep mid on, deep mid wicket, deep square leg, my backward point to see where the angles were. Maybe they were going to reverse sweep or try and hit me out of deep mid wicket. And that's the point when I'd say, oh, and I'd look to deep mid wicket then and say, oh, just move a bit to the side, Dave, or whatever. I think he's coming to you. And just that fact that I'd watch them look where they were hitting it and signaled to my fielder to move a bit. First of all, really pissed them off, um, but secondly, it made them think I knew what they were trying to do, um, and that happened because I was walking backwards to my mark rather than turning my back on them. So, we should never, as spinners, you know, turn our back on the clues because I think the time between balls is where the a lot of the decision making happens. So that was another little um, little tweak, and and then the no run up, you know, no run up ball as well. That was another thing. So there's lots of innovations. And I guess all you're trying to do is move from that consistent rhythm. You know, what a batsman wants when they're attacking is that if you imagine the rhythm of a footfall, it would be ba-dump, 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 hit, ba-dump, 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 hit. So if all of a sudden they get ba-dump, you know, the ball gets presented or ba-dump, 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 hit, you know, you're changing that rhythm. So the, the, the ability to change how high you jump or, you know, bowling off one step and bowling those kind of things intimidated and frustrated the batsmen uh, to the point where I'd contaminated what they were trying to do, and, and that was my best weapon, to be honest. Because I, you know, I was pretty accurate, but I didn't spin the ball a huge amount. So getting inside their head was my uh, my game plan. Yeah, and then f- and following that, uh, whilst you were still an active player, you got called up by England
0: to be the psychologist in 2007. How was that period? Was it was it strange, sort of? Uh, whilst you still probably knew quite a few of the players from a playing point of view, then working them with as a coach?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd finished a few years previously um, and then I'd done my master's degree and I was actually working for the ICC with teams like Scotland, Ireland, Bermuda, Holland. Um, and I was supporting them at the World Cup out in the Caribbean. So Duncan Fletcher knew that I was out there and I was due to fly home. And he he'd asked me if I'd stay on and do a bit of work with England. So yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, England weren't in great shape at the time and that was when the, the pedalo uh, incident happened uh, which was again another great uh, coaching experience to be uh, part of not my not my finest moment or Freddy's but yeah a good story nonetheless
0: and then following that uh, you actually got called up to play for England again in the, the T20 World Cup in South Africa how was that uh, coming from being the sort of coach if you like to then back into the same dressing room as a player
1: yeah, I don't know if that's ever happened before. But um, yeah, it was the World Cup 2020. I got selected to go out to South Africa to the World Cup. Um, so yeah, a bit strange to be uh, going back in. But, you know, again, fascinating to see. We'd got a really successful side at, at Leicester. We'd got to those first four finals and won two of them. So to go to the inaugural World Cup of 2020 was another step up. And that, I bowled, I played against South Africa at Newlands, which is one of my favourite grounds. I absolutely loved it. Uh, And that was interesting because I went on to coach uh, the South African team. So it was was quite good banter with them as well. But I remember bowling one over. uh, I had two drop catches and the over went for 13, I think, and I never played again. Uh, So, you know, interesting, uh, interesting times. But I think the following game was the game Stuart Broad got hit for six sixes in Durban against India with Yuvraj Singh. So it was quite an interesting tour that, but I, I was very lucky playing for England. I absolutely loved it. I played 10 ODIs and then that one 2020 game. And, you know, for me to have played at that level and played against some of the, the people that I played against was it was a real privilege and, and you know, made my career, to be honest.
0: You're listening to Under the Covers, Guernsey's very own cricket podcast. We'll be back after the short break. Bowled him. Beautiful bit of bowling from William Pete Field. The stump comes crashing out the ground and that's a big wicket here in Guernsey versus Denmark at the KG5. That's the first wicket. Letizia is the one who strikes. He gives it a big celebration. He writes it up in the book. He notes it down and sends him up. You can add Manpreet Singh to that list. That's the breakthrough Letizia needed. That's the breakthrough Guernsey needed. And that's the breakthrough that Mark Ladder to my left wants. A big smile on his face. And a wonderful shot there. Hover drive for four. Folks already finding the boundary twice in this game. Yeah, and then following this, you retired from professional cricket to really focus on the psychology side of things. This is still a massive area which I feel is still untouched even now, probably some sort of 10, 15 years on from when you retired. Is this a case of people just not taking it seriously? Or is it actually a case of players going for a bat in a bowl and just not wanting to do this?
1: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the. the The year I retired was 2008. I got a chance to, um, one of the guys that owned one of the franchises, Manoj Badali, owned the Rajasthan Royals, was heavily involved with Leicestershire. Um, And he knew that we'd got a pretty good formula there. And he asked me if I'd go out and work with this team, the Rajasthan Royals, in the IPL. And no one had ever heard of it at the time because it had just been sort of pulled together. And he said, I've just bought this team. And it turns out it was 67 million US dollars this franchise had been bought for. And I think that was the cheapest one. So I was going from Leicestershire, where there were like nine blokes watching the cricket and two whippets to, you know, this packed stadium with 40,000 people that were cheering on Shane Warne and and Graham Smith and, and the like. So the chance to work with those elite performers again and work on the psychology side and bring that team together was an incredible experience. You know, there were players from all around the world and we got to build a strong team spirit within a week before we played Mumbai Indians and things like that. So the psychology of it started to get woven into the coaching really. And and to me, sports psychology is sports thinking. So why why wouldn't we want to make that a part of everything we do? And I think one of the know, ways I look at it is there was a decade of fitness, um, there was a decade of analytics and now we've measured everything we possibly can. It's time to move inside people's head which is the last thing we can measure and that idea of this next frontier or the final frontier being this mindset and trying to understand how do we get the best out of our mindset, that's what I'm really passionate about and that's why I did the master's degree and and set up Sporting Edge and, and that's why I'm really keen to sort of share some of the interviews and the research that I've done through the podcast and and the work at Sporting Edge with businesses and sports teams. Because as I mentioned, our mindset is the biggest difference between our success and failure. And if I look back at my career, I would have spent thousands of hours hitting balls, taking catches, bowling deliveries, and a handful of hours, you know, refining my mindset because it was seen to be this strange different thing that, that nobody really um, you know could, could coach so that's that's why I wanted to retrain and try and help people because it's a lot more practical and a lot more grounded to me than than it seems.
0: And do you find that's harder to get through to sort of the, the elder players or the youngsters are more sort of receptive towards the idea of psychology?
1: Uh, well I think you know the the games changed completely since 2008 when I retired and, and you know the mental the, the American sports are way ahead of us in terms of bringing in some of these, uh, you know, scientific initiatives and things and performance, uh, you know, edges and advantages. So American sports been a been sort of a trailblazer for, for mental skills training. And then we've heard golfers, we've talk, heard from the All Blacks, you know, we've heard about all kinds of Formula One drivers visualizing and things. So I think there's been a much greater um, openness to the mental side of of health and performance. You know, if we think about the mental health movement, that's much more talked about. So as we move up to the elite end, we start thinking, well, not only do I not want to suffer mental health issues, but right at the top end of that, I want to try and take every advantage and every, you know, unleash sort of every area of potential that I've got mentally to try and, you know, get the best out of my career. Because you know, the, the higher up you go, whether it's in club cricket or Premier League, or whether you become a professional cricket or, a you know, playing for the the international game, the pressure starts to build. And the biggest, the biggest battle you face is the one in your own head. So I think most people that want to be the best they can be have realised that their mental game is something that they've absolutely got to proactively train, whether they do that overtly with coaches or not is another thing. But you know, there's enough online resources and, and, you know, content around to boost some of these skills. But as I say, to me, it's sports thinking, it's, it's about goal setting, it's about self talk, it's about visualization, it's about how we set particular outcomes for training so that we know we've built our confidence. So for example, trivial example, if my wife gives me a shopping list, or if I've got a list to go out to the shops, and I tick off eight or 10 or 15 things that I've, I've sort of done. I come back to the house more confident that she's going to be happy that I've got what we needed rather than just go to the shops and get what you think. It's a bit sort of, uh, you know, intangible. So I always encourage, you know, amateurs and, and professional players. We did it with a lot of the professional teams where they'd write on the, the little post-it note on the team bus window, you know, give me three outcomes you want to have improved by the time we come back to the bus after training. So we get dropped off at the stadium at 9.30. I've written down that I want to take 20 catches in a row without dropping one on my left hand. I want to hit the cone, you know, from round the wicket to a left hander 14 times. And I want to have faced bouncers and yorkers to make sure my feet are well balanced. Now that gives me my shopping list of, of accountabilities and focus for my training session today. So I know that I, when I've achieved those things, to be really focused in my training session, I'm now more prepared, more confident. And those, those you know, elements of training and sacrifice and time dedicated to those particular concerns have gone into my bank account of confidence. I am now more confident you know writing three things down is not hard people think sports psychology has got to be something dreamy or whatever but actually some of the foundational principles are just common sense and just doing them and aggregating them day after day really starts to build you know and connect those sort of mental muscles that we need to become more resilient and stronger under pressure
0: and like you said they're, they're pretty easy for for any age of cricketer to start from you know from amateur level right the way to elite as well
1: Absolutely. But how many of us go, you know, how many of your listeners go to training and just have a net? Yeah. You know, other simple things as examples, we we worked out that in 2020 cricket in the IPL, someone like Sahail Tambir, who was jumped off the wrong foot, had a really deceptive action. We were going to use him in one over spells because if he could get a wicket with that over, then that was that was brilliant. So he wasn't particularly happy about this, but I, we basically worked his training out to say, come into the nets and bowl one over. And then you're going to go out onto the main field and do some fielding drills. And then we're going to whistle you and you're going to come back and bowl another six balls. Now, previous to that, all he'd done was bowl for an hour and then go and have a shower. Now in the match, that's not what you're asked to do. You're asked to bowl six balls and get a wicket. So all of a sudden now his training is replicating the match demand that is placed on him he's in a completely different mindset because his first ball in training has got to be on the money. You know, the same thing, we did it with South Africa. We started training on a whistle. So Dale Stane has warmed up his body against a side net, but he hasn't bowled a ball in the net yet. Neither has Mornay Morkle. Graham Smith and Hashim Amla haven't faced a ball yet. So we started on a whistle when everyone was ready. That's very different to Mornay Morkle marking his run-up out and bowling four leg spinners or doing a Shane Warne impression just to Hashim Amla while he takes his guard, which is what normally happens in the nets. But if you think about what happens to Hashim Amla or Graham Smith in the nets, they face Brett Lee first ball going full ball. They don't, face Shane, they don't see Brett Lee bowling a few dodgy leg spinners while he marks his run-up out. So it's, it's trying to prepare yourself for the intensity of the question you're going to be asked in your training and making sure you're ready at a mental level for that, a physical level of that. And when you prepare at that level, you're ready. And that, again, that can be done at schools. That can be done in club cricket. It's no different. And that is a mental preparation for the intensity so that you train at the right level.
0: Something on the intensity there at South Africa is a drill you did with them. Um, I believe you got them to have a an iPod in playing um, the IPL final crowd noise whilst doing fielding drills. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we did a number of things like that. I was I was always trying to look for creative ways to distract them, really, because you know, as I say, we we're as cricketers, I think we go through the motions a lot with our training, and you know, whether it's you know playing loud music or or distracting them with overload, you know, we we do training drills where they'd have, you know, different colored balls coming at them and, and the different colored balls meant different shots. You know, you've got to sweep, sweep some red balls and the white ball, you've got to reverse sweep, for example. And, and they didn't see that until it came from behind your back. So you're always trying to, um, you know, overload. That's probably the best thing. Make them think, make them react faster, put some kind of um, distraction or or try and replicate that arena and, the same thing happened with England rugby, you know, creating the Welsh choir singing that they're about to go to Cardiff Arms Park or the Millennium Stadium. And, you know, England rugby training to that kind of volume and noise in their training session so that they get acclimatised to the, the sort of crowd noise. So it's not a shock. And then with regards to your, your link with Zafka
0: when you work with them, you also had a coaching role as well as the psychology side of things. How was the balance between that and what exactly did that entail?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I probably got a bit closer to the, the coaching side than than you know any other time really there because um, I worked very well with uh, Mickey Arthur. He was a great head coach. Graeme Smith was a very strong captain. Um, you know, and that ability to bring some innovation and, and bring some fresh ideas was probably where where I sat. Um, you know, the, their quest to get to number one in the world was all about trying to get those fine margins better and the mental game was part of that. But equally, you know, touring England, I'd obviously got some advice about conditions and different techniques. Going to India was it was an interesting challenge um, and they did incredibly well there. And then going to Australia to try and beat them to get to number one in the world, again, you know, took a mental toughness to play against that great Australian side and beat them. Um, So yeah, throwing balls, um, you know, doing fielding drills, you know, that was all part of it. You know, I think in some other sports, because I don't, I can't coach rugby. I can't coach Premier League footballers. I've been in those environments, but you tend to be the, the guy, you know, sitting next to the coffee machine and waiting for a chat. Whereas with cricket. I was, you know, walking with a batsman to the nets with a bag of balls and doing concentration drills and things like that, which, you know, I think gave me some really good impact.
0: And then with that, how exactly does sort of pressure take over the thought process side of things?
1: Uh, Well, it's a great question. And um, I think your brain's built for safety. It's not built for high performance. So that's the first thing we've got to get over. Our brain's built to keep us safe from traditionally the saber-toothed tiger but now it's not a threat to our lives it's a threat to our self-esteem and our sort of professional reputation so if any of your listeners have done a speech or a best man's speech or a corporate speech you'll know you get sweaty palms and you start to speak really quickly uh you you get a bit sort of flummoxed in, in how you're going to speak your brain scrambles a bit and that's because your brain's trying to take you back to the safety of the first row or the second row uh, where you're meant to be and not on stage because you, you want you to get it out of the way too fast. If anyone's batted or bowled in a in a big final or a last over situation, you know that your you sort of brain starts to scramble, your heart rate elevates and your vision narrows down. So your brain really wants to get you away from those kind of situations. But the best performers have learned that all of those triggers and all of those physical symptoms of butterflies in your stomach, sweaty palms, narrowing of your field of vision, all of those things are actually there to prime you to be at your best. And you've just got to acknowledge that and make sure that that inner critic in your mind doesn't hijack you away from playing the way you can. So, you know, we need to have those little self-talk principles. We need to have those little cues and mantras, you know, watch the ball, hit the ball straight, you know, aim at the sight screen. Those kind of things can help to set us up properly. Focusing on our breathing routines can keep us calm and allow our brain to realize that if I'm breathing that calm, if I'm breathing that calmly, then the, the saber-toothed tiger or the threat must have gone so there I can switch off that threat response and calm down. So whether you're a, you know, Navy SEAL or a conference speaker or, or a tail end batsman trying to face a fast bowler, trying to slow yourself down and, and focus on what you can control, focus on your breathing and focus on you know, hitting the ball straight and, and one ball at a time. Those are key strategies that, again, you know, can be replicated across any level of the game.
0: And then something you you sort of touched on in the webinar was uh, when a batsman is sort of counting the fielders, you spoke about the areas they're looking at, so that they're actually looking at the fielder rather than the gap between the fielders.
1: Yeah, and again, it's just another simple technique. You know, we we often, you know, lots of batsmen have worked in that sort of time between balls and they sort of go around. You can almost see them, you know, the mouth or the lips moving as they count the number of fielders around, but actually you're not trying to point the fielders out. You're trying to point the gaps out, you know, so even just going round the field in between balls and sort of looking, okay, there's, if the ball's short and wide, that's where the gap is. Or if the guy goes too full, I can punch it back down because mid on's too wide. It's thinking what you want to do rather than what you don't want to do. And, you know, um, thinking about you know the classic would be golf you know you see the water on the left hand side uh, that's sort of winking at you but actually don't look at the water look at this you know the point in the middle of the fairway that you want to hit and then the three cue words that you might have might be you know tall um follow through you know and and aim at that sort of tree or whatever those are the cues that's where I do want to hit it rather than my you know fearful caveman voice saying don't go in the water, you know, or he's going to be really fast or whatever um I think that's that's the joy of it you know when whenever batsmen are able to stay calm and, and relax and be instinctive, then you get the whole timeline of from the ball being released to you hitting it rather than when you're premeditating it's almost like you use the first part of the timeline you know as your weight's gone back because you think it's going to be a bounce, and then you've only got half the timeline to to get back into position when it's full so yeah, playing, playing instinctively and allowing your mind to get quieter with these little strategies and breathing techniques and you know, key words is, is definitely a simple thing that anyone can do.
0: And you, you spoke about uh, goal setting as well. Some simple things such as uh, you mentioned Graham Smith previously has, has drawn a picture of him lifting the, the World Cup for South Africa. That was his ambition, or at least playing for South Africa. Um, and then you also mentioned about... Uh, make sure that they're realistic aims uh, rather than it just you know not being something which is completely unrealistic. Talk to us a little bit about that as well.
1: Yeah well goals are um, goals are are really important to anyone any performer really because it gives you focus and um, Graeme Smith's story is fascinating really at age 11 he drew a picture of himself in a green tracksuit and said he wanted to be the captain of South Africa and stuck it on the fridge Uh, and his mum sort of you know, chortled and, and went about a business. And and for him, that was a, a, a sort of a key anchor point to say, that's what I dream of. And then every day walk past the fridge. This is the key thing. We can't just have a dream. We've actually got the habits are the key because your performance doesn't elevate up to what you draw on your pictures, you know, and what you have in your mind. It, it lowers to the level of your habits. So if our habits aren't high performance each day, and if we aren't tackling those weaknesses that we've got in our game and if we're not brave enough to go for that provincial trial and if we're not calm enough to face that fast bowler and if we're not disciplined enough to get that 50 in the trial match then we never get the point get to the point where we will be you know recognized at that level so i think having that inspirational goal is critical and and you know if any of your listeners are interested in my podcast inside the mind of champions we've we've covered off Um, goal setting and performing under pressure in some of the early episodes. So, you know, there's some great insights from some of the Olympians and, and psychologists talking about those practical strategies that you can use in cricket. But again, you know, for anyone listening in their career, brilliant to have an inspirational goal of where you want to be in five years time. But you've got to work back from that and break it down into smaller chunks with You know, what can I do next? What can I do today? What can I do next week? Where do I need to be by the end of the year? Where do I need to be by the end of the season? You know, everyone tends to say, I want to have a great season. I want to be player of the year. Okay, great. Well, what does that mean? That's a thousand runs, right? How many games have we got? How many games get rained off? How many low scores do I normally get? Right. That means I've got 12 innings, you know, so when I do get to a hundred or 80 or whatever, I've got to go all the way and try and get 130 because those extra 30 runs in that innings are going to be, you know, cancel out one of the ducks I get in early April or something. So all of a sudden it gives you focus to have that end of season goal, but you can start to think that on average, you need to be getting this number of runs, which is batting this length of time, you know, and, and facing these many balls. Yeah. And you, you touched on your
0: podcast there, um, Inside the Minor Champions. Uh, is that available on iTunes,
1: Spotify and via website? Yeah, absolutely. Also on sportingedge.com. So there's about uh, 25 episodes at the moment and, you know, interviewed people like Eddie Jones, um, Stuart Broad gave us a great interview and, and Viv Richards all about their mindset and their performance. So some really practical activities and and lots of, you know, corporate and business ideas If there's entrepreneurs and executives listening. I, you know, I do a lot of my work with businesses as well. So you know, people, executives from Google and London Business School professors. There's loads of brilliant people that we've interviewed as part of Sporting Edge's research. And it's, it's all about trying to, you know, help people to understand how the elite performers think and translate that into practical tools for everyone to be able to do it.
0: So actually, yeah, a great example on your last podcast you recorded was what Jürgen Grobler, the great British rowing coach, did ahead of Sir Steve Redgrave's fifth gold at the Olympics. Could you just elaborate on that story for us?
1: Yeah, Jürgen Grobler, the um, world-class coach. I think he's must be one of the most successful coaches of all time. Uh, Sir Matthew Pinsent was on his way to his fifth gold medal and uh, Jürgen said to him, oh, I think um, James Cracknell's a bit nervous in his first Olympics. Will you go and talk to him uh, and just tell him, you know, the basics and how to calm himself down because of the enormity of this race? Um, and that was brilliant, of course, because... Um, a few weeks later after they'd won the gold medal and, and Redgrave had won his fifth gold medal he went to Jürgen Grobler and said oh you know did you really think I was nervous then on that particular you know final and they said no I didn't think you were nervous uh, I, I didn't think James was nervous I thought you would be nervous so I got you to talk to James and calm him down but actually that would give you something to do for half an hour before the race and keep you focused on those brilliant basics and realize that You know, you were part of a strong team and all the stuff you were telling him was going to be relevant to you as well. So, yeah, some brilliant um, sort of coaching artwork and mastery there from Jürgen Grobler. But as you say, the podcast is is sort of full of those. I've interviewed about 100 people now and, um, you know, it's a fascinating uh, area. So, yeah, lots of tips to share.
0: And that's definitely something there, an example of making sure you sort of understand, if you're looking from a coaching point of view, the player you're working with and obviously, the great British rowing coach knew that and knew how that would affect the team. Uh, and there's got to be a balance of that as well as a coach.
1: Yeah, you're you're always coaching a person, not just a, a robot, you know, and there's a great insight in that podcast as well from Boris Becker talking about how he coached Novak Djokovic and, you know, he'd sort of study the look in his eyes and his body language and know whether today was the day to drop in that criticism or that feedback or or to disrupt him a bit from complacency. Um, And I think that I often think that the best leaders in business or the best coaches in sport are performance detectives. You know, we're looking for clues in the individuals or the social chemistry of a team to try and, you know, understand when the right time to move them to the next stages. And, And I've been very lucky to work with some of those great teams and, you know, share some of that knowledge.
0: Yeah, no, it's been really interesting chat to you. What I'll do is I'll link all your website. Um, Your Twitter and your social media feeds, the podcast notes, uh, and along with that, also your website. So if anyone does want to tune in and listen in, it would be great for them to sort of listen into those podcasts. I found them fascinating personally, so I'm sure other people will as well.
1: Yeah, that's great. And and we've just set up a new subscription model at uh, Sporting Edge as well, where you can get access to all of these things, about 700 of these two minute videos now with about 80 different experts talking about all these different topics so um if you go to sportingedge.com and look for the membership then it's a monthly subscription and i coach that group of executives and coaches around the world and and uh, yeah brilliant content it's a really good community that's building so we'd love to see some of your network in it and i'm sure they'd absolutely love the content
0: no it's been brilliant and thank you very much for taking your time out and, and listening in and, and coming on to the show
1: Absolute pleasure and hopefully we can get over to sunny Guernsey at some point when this uh, pandemic lifts but you know wishing everyone well and I hope the build-up to the season this year is a good one for you just make sure your mindset is a is a priority because I'm sure it'll pay dividends if it is yeah no definitely and thank you very much thanks
0: thank you for listening to the Guernsey Cricket Podcast remember to hit the subscribe button and keep listening